Thomas King's national bestseller, Inconvenient Indian, he introduces readers to a litany of land theft cases, especially land of significant resource potential. From the Stony Point Ojibwe Reserve in Northern Ontario to the Seneca Allegheny Reservation in Pennsylvania, King presents a predatory relationship between colonizers and indigenous peoples in a plain and matter-of-fact manner. The pattern is eerily similar between every instance. The colonizers see an economic opportunity. They follow through on said opportunity, ignoring indigenous concerns along the way, and they move on to the next one. The common defense for their actions? The indigenous peoples weren't using the land properly. They didn't develop the land, so we're going to do it for them. King pokes holes in this excuse as he examines indigenous ways of knowing which come into direct conflict with the subtler ways of knowing that most of us are raised with. So we have some pretty big issues, but what can we possibly do? I mean, as we always say, we can't change the past, right? Well, that's where King and some other distinguished authors come into play. But first, let's briefly take it back to 1961, a period of great prosperity, right? Well, as always, it's complicated. Nineteen sixty one. It's the heat of the Cold War, and the rivalry can be seen everywhere. Whether it's tensions in Cuba, divisions in Berlin, or the space race, everything in the world seemingly revolves around the battle between the US and the Soviet Union. However, much less publicized but undoubtedly significant events were unfolding in the Columbia River Basin. John Diefenbaker was serving as Prime Minister of Canada, as a member of the Conservative Party. Now, Diefenbaker helped extend the vote to Inuit and First Nations peoples in 1960. He also made steps to reduce racial discrimination from immigration policy, helped secure South Africa's departure from the British Commonwealth, and appointed female and Indigenous people to his cabinet, a first for both. However, Buried amidst these truly progressive changes was the aggressive and rapid expansion of hydroelectric projects enabled by great leaps in engineering and construction advancements in the mid-20th century. Indigenous peoples across North America were in for a nasty surprise. Along with John F. Kennedy, Diefenbaker implemented the Columbia River Treaty which was an agreement between Canada and the U.S. to develop and operate dams along the shared Columbia River Basin for mutual benefits of flood control and power generation. Kennedy, for his part, was seen in the 60s fighting for civil rights and the importance of honoring treaties, but apparently none of this seemed to extend to the indigenous peoples living within the borders of his own nation. As for the project, it was seen as a can't-miss home run. The economic benefits were difficult to ignore, and the results have spoken for themselves. In the decades since, the dams have produced billions of dollars in electricity. However, what nobody talks about in 1961 was the indigenous presence in the Columbia River Basin. Indigenous peoples have occupied the Columbia River Basin for thousands of years, but in the 50s, 
just a few years before the treaty was signed, the Canadian government declared one of these groups, the Sinex people, to be extinct, despite their people still inhabiting the area in sizable numbers. Despite their obvious presence, they were never consulted by either government leading up to the agreement. And while the Columbia Basin Trust was organized for British Columbian citizens to compensate for socioeconomic damages, this wasn't made available to Indigenous communities. Nor would it fix the problem. They wanted their land, not a Westerner's idea of compensation for their land. And for the Sinex people, it wasn't just the river that was being invaded. Years later, they faced a highway that threatened to cut right through their land. Despite the unearthing of ancient burial remains in 1981 that proved the Sinex's presence clear as day, plans went ahead to construct the highway in 1989. The route was chosen for its cost-effectiveness, and again, there were no consultations with the Sinex people, because according to the government, they didn't exist. However, those people that were supposedly extinct made their presence known when construction crews arrived. They blockaded the roads in front of bulldozers, trucks, and other equipment. And in contrast to many other indigenous protests, this one was non-violent, and the Sinex people even managed to divert the route around their burial ground, although it would still be built eventually. As for the land affected by the Columbia River Treaty, the case remains unresolved today. And there are now more than 60 dams populating the length of the Columbia River. Indigenous peoples have demanded that they be included in a reworked Columbia River Treaty, which has begun to take form recently. The original Columbia River Agreement can be terminated as early as 2024, should the U.S. or Canada wish meaning the Canadian government is evaluating its future to determine whether they would like to continue, amend, or terminate the treaty. The Canadian government claims it is doing its due diligence to take into account Indigenous concerns, as they acknowledge that in 1961, consultations were, quote, inadequate to non-existent by today's standards, unquote, according to the B.C. provincial government. A primary concern for Indigenous peoples in this renegotiation is the Columbia River Basin ecosystem, which has sev faced severe consequences ever since the first four commissioned dams were completed in the 60s. One of the most significant consequences was the decline of salmon populations, which Indigenous people have fished from the Columbia River for thousands of years. After the dams were built, Salmon were unable to move downstream to spawning grounds, which has drastically limited fishing yields in the years since. That, combined with massive flooding, has rendered many traditional indigenous sites along the river completely uninhabitable. Which is ironic, considering the main cause for the treaty's existence was flooding to white communities. Their plight somehow justified the flooding of sacred indigenous sites to pass off the burden. Admittedly, it was an easy decision for the government. Who would they rather keep happy? A small, indigenous nation, or a group of white people who are tied directly into their economy? It is truly amazing what the government will do for those it truly serves, regardless of the impact on neglected indigenous peoples. Thus, 
Both indigenous and even some non-indigenous activists have lobbied for the removal of dams. One particularly interesting case is Duncan Dam, which has no hydroelectric capabilities, but is simply a holding tank for the United States downstream. To this day, the case of the Columbia River Treaty remains a very contentious issue, but there is an active discourse, which is where real change must begin. Access to resources has always been a priority for settlers, and that is especially true when those resources happen to be occupied by indigenous peoples. For those in the Ottawa region, here's a local example of settler exploitation, but also of indigenous resistance and resilience. The Chaudière Falls, or the Akikojiwan Falls, as they are known to Algonquin peoples, have been a significant and sacred place since time immemorial, and they have been noted as one of the earliest sites of human occupation in Canada. Located on the Ottawa River between what are now the cities of Gatineau and Ottawa, the falls marked an important meeting place for peoples who inhabited the area alongside the Ottawa River especially with the innovation of the canoe, which allowed them to use the waterways as highways of sorts. But of course, things couldn't stay the same forever, as Samuel de Champlain took it upon himself to rename the landmark the Chaudière Falls when he traveled down the Ottawa River in the summer of 1613. To Champlain and his European contemporaries, the Ottawa River was significant for much different reasons, not as a spiritual haven or a source of community and life, but an important passage for economic opportunity. When the fur trade began not long after Champlain's visit, the falls were seen as nothing but a major impediment to the Ottawa River trade route, as boats had to be portaged around the falls to reach their final destination. But the geography of the area would remain largely untouched until the arrival of Philemon Wright in 1800, who saw an opportunity to develop the area. By this time, the British had soundly defeated the French and were now in control of Canada, continually encroaching on Algonquin territory in the Ottawa Valley. Despite the Algonquins aiding the British in the War of 1812, their land was continually stolen by the British. All of their traditional land was sold by 1822, all without their consultation and without any compensation. In 1827, Ottawa region's first bridge was built beside the falls, and when logging took off in the area and upstream, the falls were once again a pain for industry. Thus, in 1829, the first timber slide was built into the falls to facilitate the easy travel of timber. Major lumber barons set up shop in the area, and some of Canada's largest sawmills soon formed on the banks of the falls. As if the area hadn't changed enough, the newfound demand for electricity in the early 20th century would forever change the area once again. In 1910, the Ring Dam was built, 
which diverted the falls water for power generation. By this point, the falls bore little resemblance to its original peaceful existence, as it had now served as the centerpiece for centuries of European industrial development. In the 1950s, the National Capital Commission, a Canadian crown corporation responsible for urban planning in Ottawa, revealed plans to return the falls back to their original state, which was supported nearly unanimously by the various Algonquin groups. The plan called for the complete undamming of the falls and parkland covering the entirety of the island surrounding it. It also called for the unceded land to be turned over to Algonquin control. It appeared that reconciliation was finally becoming a reality. Decades later, very little of this has come to fruition, as a real estate development now dominates the still unceded Algonquin territory, a far cry from the original plan, which the commission has seemingly abandoned. The development, named Zibi, which is the Algonquin Anishinaabe word for river, has garnered heavy criticism from many Algonquin groups. While the marketing and publicity behind the development has celebrated the project as a great tribute to the rich history of the falls, it has been exposed by some Algonquins as cultural appropriation, an affront to the government and commission's promises of reconciliation. Once again, Algonquin peoples were not adequately consulted before the project, which sparked numerous protests, land claims, lawsuits, and appeals, but to no avail. After all, these channels of communication are the constructs of people who stole their land, so it makes sense that these systems would only work against them. Not only are they discriminated against based on race, but they also lack the financial means to properly fight against real estate behemoths and the Canadian government. And judging by the development's new residents' reactions, they don't seem to see any problems at all. Quoting from a 2018 CBC interview with resident Marc-Antoine Massicot, he ironically said, It was a lot better to have this kind of project on that site than to leave it as it was. All I've seen there is abandoned buildings and bricks and concrete, and now we're starting to see the river. We're starting to see the trees. Unquote. Well, there's a reason that there were abandoned buildings and concrete there. Centuries of colonial negligence. What Massacot said was exactly the opposite of what many Algonquins have said about naturalizing the falls back to its former state. But it would be unfair to the Algonquin peoples not to mention their successes within the project. Alongside the real estate development, the beautiful Chaudière Falls Park, which surrounds the development, was designed by Indigenous architect Douglas Cardinal. The park incorporates many shapes and styles that are credited to the Algonquins. And the naming of the ZB development was seen as a victory for people who wanted to make sure the land's significance wouldn't be forgotten. One will notice that many of Ottawa's major roads and landmarks are named after the lumber and paper barons who operated and polluted next to the falls, depriving the Algonquins of any recognition. These names include Philemon Wright, Henry Bronson, John Booth, and E.B. Eddy. In fact, some of Booth's old sawmill buildings, 
which are largely responsible for the current contamination levels in the water, have now become part of the ZB condo development, billed as a heritage tribute to the man who William Lyon Mackenzie King, one of Canada's prime ministers, hailed as one of the fathers of Canada. It is reasonable to question how appropriate this is alongside the ZB development. And may I remind you that ZB means river. Considering no man in the history of the region has done more to pollute the Ottawa River than Booth, not to mention the ancient forests he devastated. So, in short, any time indigenous names are used, it can be seen as a victory. Also, the Algonquins of Ontario, which comprises some but not all of the Algonquin peoples, receives economic benefits from the project and they have supported this project from its inception. In fact, the Algonquins of Ontario have been in partnership with various real estate developments in the region, much to the frustration of other Algonquin groups who believe that the Algonquins of Ontario are not representative of the whole Algonquin people and are not really being reconciled with. Many believe that these partnerships more often than not turn to be one-sided and not in favor of indigenous peoples, these matters are further complicated by increasingly confused definitions of indigenous ancestry, as their numbers continue to decline due to flaws in the governmental definitions. Of course, the matter of whether they are dealing with the so-called real Algonquins isn't important to developers. They just want their projects to go ahead so they can profit on their land. So regardless of whether the project is supported or not, the fact remains that the falls that once served as the sacred meeting place for the Algonquins for millennia is no longer theirs. So what are we to do? The damage is seemingly irreversible. Even if indigenous lands could be returned and naturalized, it would be naive to think that that would undo all the different ways in which indigenous peoples are disadvantaged today. While I hardly know the answer, I do know that many authors have contemplated this question, and they have raised some worthy points. There is one very important word to think about for those who live with privilege. Reduction. Reduction is the key word. Whether we realize it or not, settlers have been reducing ever since their arrival in 1692. Whether this is reducing things to material value, reducing perspectives, we lose out on different ways of knowing when we fail to consider Indigenous peoples. Daniel Heath Justice, a Canadian academic and member of the Cherokee Nation, wrote on this issue in his book, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. Justice presents ways that stories can be a source of healing. A key point was avoiding the problems that come with singular stories, where the complexities are either ignored or hidden. In giving voice to multiple perspectives, there is automatically some form of discussion and challenge to the powers that be. Although it is true that there are centuries of rich history surrounding the development of the Chaudière Falls area since Champlain's arrival, there is also an equally valuable indigenous history that spans millennia. Their stories must be shared if the land is ever going to be recognized as anything other than what it is currently being used for. There is so much bias and ignorance that can be eliminated 
if an effort is made to realize indigenous stories as legitimate claims to their territory and land. In short, multiplicity offers so much more than singularity. Another key point made by Justice is that indigenous literatures can help to redefine what it means to be a good human. Justice credits Ella Cara Deloria for explaining this idea in her book, Water Lily. Opposing the settler nationalism that promotes individualism over community, Deloria expresses that being a good human is to be a good relative, one who is accountable to their kin and the natural world around them. This is something to aspire to for all people. As subjects of this capitalist, settler world, we neglect each other too often in the name of personal gains. In the current hierarchy of our society, our relationship to the land has become of such little importance to the detriment of everyone. Why should we celebrate men like Booth, Branson, Wright, and Eddy? Men who were willing to strip anything from the land to make money. By continuing to blindly celebrate these people, we not only deprive indigenous peoples of their deserved recognition, but we also continue to glorify and affirm the Western industrialized framework that we live in as completely without fault. As Thomas King writes, one of the most common and convenient excuses ever manufactured is this, quote, you can't judge the past by the present, unquote. I know I've heard it, and I'd be willing to bet you have too. By throwing this slogan around, it allows us to continue a long-standing tradition of ignorance, to keep pretending that our so-called fathers and founders were oblivious to their destructive impact. These men knew with certainty that their actions would not be beneficial for the community as a whole, but it wasn't as if their survival was at stake, as it was for the indigenous people who always got the short end of the stick. In the grand scheme of things, these men were playing with house money and given free reign, hardly accountable to the community like Deloria promotes. We can't neatly separate the least desirable parts of our history from the parts we admire and simply discount them because you can't judge the past by the present. That is incorrect. King's approach to the issue involves assessing our own ambitions as settlers. Instead of asking what indigenous peoples want, King writes that the real issue is what white people want. And King's answer to that question is land. As long as there is land that is still in indigenous possession, white people will remain unsatisfied. Thus, it is up to us to change these destructive habits. And like Justice and Deloria, King questions the unbreakable faith that people have in Western civilization, which has proven its destructiveness and unsustainability time and time again. King encourages people to explore the past critically, to understand that we have made irreparable mistakes, but those mistakes cannot be pardoned just for us to continue the same sins over and over again.